Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 195 different languages, we are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. We have something special for you today, a new format for this show that we've been working on for a while. Instead of a long-form interview with a single guest, we're going to present a variety of cannabis news and commentary from our worldwide network of activist correspondents. Please let us know how this new format's working for you. And if anybody you know, uh, or you yourself, would like to become one of our correspondents, we'd be happy to talk to you. Just drop us an email at radiofreecannabis at stevedangelo.com. Today's show will begin with a short wrap of global headlines by yours truly. Then we'll move on to some more in-depth reports on Indonesia, Mexico, and Colombia from our correspondents. And of course, I'll jump in from time to time to express my opinion. There's some good news out of the UK today, where the government-funded National Health Service has finally given young Billy Caldwell a prescription for cannabis formulation containing THC. Caldwell, who's 15 years old and suffers from intractable epilepsy, first came to attention through the efforts of his mother, Charlotte Caldwell, who has waged a tireless, years-long campaign to get Billy the medicine he needs in order to survive. Even though the NHS was authorized to provide cannabis medicines way back in 2018, Billy is the only patient thus far to receive a prescription due to bureaucratic foot-dragging. The Home Office of the UK also announced a mild loosening of restrictions on imported cannabis medicine and will now allow licensed wholesalers to import larger quantities and hold supplies for future use. The Home Step Office, Home Office that is, claims these steps will alleviate months-long delays in receiving the medicine patients have already been prescribed. It is a little step in the right direction, but we're still a long, long way from anything approaching a humane and rational medical cannabis policy in the UK. So activists there continue to aggressively press their case. We'll hear more from them in upcoming episodes. In Europe, the French government has announced the launch of its first medical cannabis experiment, which will provide legal cannabis to 3,000 patients starting in March of 2021. Again, one wonders why it takes so long to get suffering patients the medicine they need, especially when that medicine is a simple plant that's been used safely and successfully by almost every culture on the planet for millennia but at least things are beginning to move out of the deep freeze of France's draconian cannabis policy, one of the most strictly enforced forms of prohibition in all of Europe. There's also some good news out of Thailand, where the government appears to be planning an expansion of that country's medical cannabis program. The original program was launched in 2018, but restricted legal cultivation to just a few research institutions. The government's new proposal would grant licenses to private pharmaceutical companies and in a unique and promising twist 
would also license Thailand's traditional healers to participate in the legal industry. This would mark the first time anywhere in the world that traditional healers have been included in reform legislation. And here at RFC, we hope this sets an example for other countries to follow. News from the United States is mixed. On the negative side of the ledger, the United States Supreme Court has refused to consider the latest in a series of lawsuits filed by cannabis activists seeking the rescheduling of cannabis. Cannabis is designated a Schedule I substance in the United States, meaning the government considers it to have no medical use and a high potential for addiction and misuse. This Schedule I designation clearly has no rational basis and has long been a target for U.S. activists. And I can promise you that despite this latest setback, our efforts will continue until one day this absurd law is retired into the trash can of history where it belongs. Another piece of discouraging news is that the Trump Department of Justice has reached a most accommodating legal settlement with the Sackler family, owners of the notorious Purdue Pharmaceutical Company, inventors of OxyContin, and the people most responsible for the opioid epidemic in the United States, an epidemic that has killed almost half a million people. The Sacklers, who made $13 billion from Purdue's activities, will, believe, <clears throat> will be relieved of all liability for these deaths in return for a payment of just $225 million. Meanwhile, African-American prisoners in the United States serve life sentences for nonviolent cannabis crimes. One of them, Michael Thompson, who is 69 years old and has served 27 years of a 60-year sentence for the sale of three pounds of cannabis, has finally been granted a parole hearing in the state of Michigan. This bit of good news is the result of a year-long campaign by The Last Prisoner Project that motivated the public to send tens of thousands of emails and phone calls to the parole board and the governor of the state, Gretchen Whitmer. The hearing will take place on November 17th and will be in a virtual format and the public is invited to participate. So as we get closer to the date, we'll let you know how to access that hearing. Finally, we have this quirky little piece out of India where the Narcotics Control Board in Mumbai busted what they called a international drug trafficking racket in possession of a whole whopping kilo of cannabis flowers. What makes this really interesting is that the buds, which were seized at the Lonava La Post Office in Pune, were supposedly imported by mail from the United States. Now, this isn't the first time I've heard of cannabis being exported from the United States, but as somebody who spent a huge chunk of my career smuggling cannabis into the United States, it always still kind of surprises me. But I get it, right? One of the real lights, or one of the real delights of my youth was experiencing legendary imported cannabis like Nepalese temple balls and Thai sticks and Santa Marta gold from Colombia. And boy, I look forward to the day when our whole international cannabis tribe will be able to freely trade our cannabis with each other, no matter where we are. Now we're going to take a deeper look at the cannabis situation in Indonesia with legendary underground journalist Bill Weinberg. A British pretty boy model getting popped for pot and facing a lengthy term in notoriously harsh prisons has again focused international attention on Indonesia's anti-drug police state. 
but countless others suffer in the shadows, including some 150 on death row for drug charges. And recent progress and official recognition of at least the medicinal properties of cannabis has been rolled back. The UK tabloids are abuzz with the news that a hot Brit model for leading fashion lines, Jed Texas, real name Jed Higgins, faces 20 years in prison in Indonesia following a cannabis bust. Texas has been held in Bali's brutal and overcrowded Karabakan prison since police raided his beachside villa in the resort town of Kangu in April. The raid turned up 85 grams of cannabis, about three ounces. The Karabakan facility also currently holds British grandmother Lindsay Sandiford, who in 2013 was sentenced to death on a cocaine charge. Photos from inside the prison show dozens of men living in one room and forced to sleep on the floor of their collective cell. Also winning some attention is Davy Shane Christian, an Australian national who faces 12 years in prison after being busted in Bali with a measly 0.19 grams of cannabis, a bong, and 0.42 grams of a purple powder that the authorities say was ecstasy. But even without the purple powder, simple possession of cannabis can still land you a 12-year term under Indonesia's narcotics law, considered one of the harshest in the world. In sufficient quantities, cannabis can even land you on death row. Prosecutors are currently seeking the death penalty for six men accused of smuggling 240 kilograms of cannabis into Jakarta last year. Lindsay Sandiford is one of some 150 people on death row in Indonesia, mostly for drug charges and about a third of them foreign nationals. Indonesia has been observing a moratorium on executions, so no prisoners have actually been sent to the firing squad since 2015. But President Joko Widodo's new attorney general, Sanitiar Burhanuddin, pledged upon being appointed one year ago that executions would certainly resume. He has yet to make good on his promise. This August saw a reversal in efforts to win official recognition of the medicinal applications of cannabis, which has a long history of traditional use in Indonesian culture. That month, the Agriculture Ministry announced that it will rescind a ministerial decree issued just months earlier that listed cannabis as a medicinal plant under the ministry's supervision. Signed in February, the decree included cannabis sativa as one of 66 medicinal plants whose production is under the oversight of the ministry's general directorate for horticulture. An account in the Jakarta Post sadly implies that it was activist glee at the decree that did it in. Shortly after it was first issued, the decree went viral in cyberspace when the advocacy group Nusantara Marijuana Network posted a photo of the document on its Instagram account. Nusantara is an ancient name for the Indonesian Malaysian archipelago associated with the centuries long maritime spice trade. Apparently in response to this undue attention, the horticulture directorate made its announcement citing agriculture minister Cyrul Yassin Limpo's commitment to eradicate drug abuse. Quote, this decree will be revived soon after we coordinate with the National Narcotics Agency. Horticulture Director Tommy Nugraha said in a statement August 29th. He also implied that it had been listed in the first place to inhibit 
rather than encourage commercial production. Quote, marijuana's inclusion in the medicinal plant list means that it can only be used for research as stipulated under the law on horticulture. Currently, we record no legal marijuana farmers in Indonesia, he stated. All this comes amid a general escalation of violence and repression in Indonesia. President Widodo has followed in the footsteps of the Philippines' Rodrigo Duterte by instating a shoot-on-sight policy for drug suspects, citing a supposed drug state of emergency in the archipelago nation. Shortly after Widodo announced the policy three years ago, Amnesty International noted a dramatic increase in police shootings of drug suspects. Alas, there is potential for the convergence of drug enforcement and counterinsurgency in Indonesia, the same kind of grim intersection seen in Colombia, Peru, Burma, and elsewhere. A long simmering pro-independence insurgency in the rest of region of West Papua was last year given greater impetus by a popular uprising. While it remains taboo under Indonesian rule, much cannabis has grown in West Papua, exported on the illicit market to elsewhere in Indonesia, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific. It is known as Spak Bruce in the local Melanesian tongue, Spak meaning intoxicating and Bruce meaning homegrown tobacco. Another cannabis producing region is Aceh on the northwestern tip of the island of Sumatra. This region had also been the scene of a long separatist insurgency which finally ended with a peace deal in 2005. But the marginalized region has never fully recovered from the war. Lawmakers in Aceh have proposed legalizing cannabis, at least within the region, as a ticket to economic development. Such measures stand little chance under Widodo's increasingly authoritarian government. For Radio Free Cannabis, this has been Bill Weinberg with the Global Ganja Report. Thanks, Bill. We are thrilled to have you on Radio Free Cannabis and look forward to next week's report. What I've heard about Indonesia from friends who have spent time there is that despite the draconian laws and death sentences, cannabis consumption is quite widespread by tourists and Indonesians alike, and arrests are relatively rare. Instead, as in many other countries, police on the street use encounters with cannabis consumers as opportunities for extortion as opportunities to extract bribes from our community. And higher ranking cops rake in the really big bucks by facilitating smuggling and larger transactions. It's a pattern common all around the world. Cops are almost always the last to embrace cannabis reform, often because they want to maintain their corrupt sources of income. We are going to take a look at Mexico next, where a slow motion form of legalization has been unfolding over the last few years. In late 2018, the Mexican Supreme Court ruled that the prohibition of cannabis is unconstitutional and ordered the Mexican Senate to pass legislation to legalize the plant and create regulations for a legal industry. Unfortunately, thus far, the Senate has passed several deadlines set by the Supreme Court and been granted extensions each time. So Mexican legalization is still a work in progress, still bottled up in the Senate. But Mexican activists aren't taking the delay sitting down. Our friend Caitlin Donahue, an independent journalist living and working in Mexico City, 
is going to bring us up to date on the goings-on in the Senate and elsewhere in Mexico City. Nonetheless, there are some people that are championing this cause in, cause in the Senate. Um, I might mention, for example, Jesus Rodriguez of Mor the Morena Party, which is um, President AMLO's party and, and the party that currently has the majority in, in the legislative houses. Um, Jesusa is a performance artist. Um, she's also a theater owner and she has this very theatric flamboyant um, way of presenting her legislative priorities. She often does these kind of like, she's been known to bring like massive puppets and things to the floor of the Senate to express political points. Um, and earlier this September, she brought a cannabis plant to her um, desk within the actual Senate chamber. Um, and she's not actually the only Senator that has brought actual physical marijuana plants inside the Senate chamber. Um, and this is actually, I think that we can attribute that, um, that phenomenon to um, the Movimiento Cannabico Mexicano, also known as the Mexican Cannabis Movement. The Mexican Cannabis Movement is a group of activists that for the past seven months have been living outside, basically on the front yard of the Mexican Senate. Um, they said they've set up a protest camp there that they call Plantón 420. Um, and they have really taken on the charge when it comes to interacting with the senators, making sure the senators understand why cannabis legalization is so important and, um, and as well as the general public. And to that end, they've planted um, cannabis plants right there in front of the Senate, um, there in the Louis Pasteur Plaza where they're set up. And those cannabis plants that they've planted is now have now turned into like a cannabis jungle. It's massive. And if you haven't seen photos of Plantone 420 in front of the Mexican Senate and you are an advocate for cannabis rights, I thoroughly encourage you to go ahead and Google that right now because it is a beautiful sight to see and also quite historic just to see these like massive cannabis plants literally blooming like a few feet from the, one of the main entrances to the Mexican Senate, which is amazing. Um, that group, uh, the Mexican Cannabis Movement, they are also really trying to put the pressure on the Senate right now to make this, to get the gears going on legalization. And as part of that, they've also been organizing um, these, these uh, walks of cannabis users called, they call um, fumaton, like a, a, a marathon, a marathon is like a fumaton. So it's like a smoking marathon basically where they'll, they'll circle the Senate. And those have been taking place on the first Tuesday of every month. So we're seeing um, cannabis activists right down here um, beginning to lose their patience, I would say, with this process. We have been waiting, like I said, for two years since the Supreme Court declared this a constitutional right. Um, so they're trying to be as visible as they possibly can. And Mexican activists are some of the best in the world at being visible, at drawing attention to their cause. I had the opportunity to visit Planton 420 in its very earliest days. And from the beginning, it was just sparkling with light and freedom and joy. It was really inspiring. And meanwhile, as the Mexican Senate dithers, the cops of Mexico City continued to launch predatory attacks on the cannabis community. The latest outrage came in mid-September when the Mexico City Police Department announced it was placing drug-sniffing dogs in the subway, which is a vital and irreplaceable means of transportation for most residents. Some of these dogs were trained to smell cannabis and in fact detected it, leading to at least one confirmed arrest. We'll go back to Caitlin now to hear how local activists 
reacted. Once again, um, the Movimiento Canabico Mexicano, um, the activists who've been camping out in front of the Senate, um, they have become kind of the focal point on the resistance to this policy. So a week after um, this kind of high publicity introduction of dogs in the in the subway was announced on September 12th, um, the activists actually scheduled, uh, they went ahead and had this very visible protest. Um, they started out at Planton 420 in front of the Senate, and then they proceeded to several government buildings to drop off um, letters stating their displeasure with what was happening, um, reminding the Mexico City Mayor Claudia Sheinbaum that in the past she has promised that she has already given an order to the police not to target cannabis users. So reminding her of that promise that she has made and apparently broken. Um, the letters also called the use of dogs, said that the use of dogs violated the freedom of transit for cannabis users and that they saw it as an act against the dignity of cannabis users. So um, they went from those uh, Mexico City government offices, they proceeded to the Revolucion Metro station. Um, mind you, all this time, the activists are once again burying cannabis plants um, and, and they're chanting and they're, and they're chanting, you know, protest chants. Um, and they made a big scene in the Metro of the Revolucion Metro. I just love the bold, uncompromising spirit of the Mexican cannabis movement the unabashed and unashamed love they express for the plant, and the joy that they take in their acts of resistance. Something big is happening in Mexico, and I think it's an inspiring example for activists all over the world to follow. We're now going to another good friend of Radio Free Cannabis, independent journalist and activist, Pedro Nicoletti. Pedro is going to fill us in on the gray market that's been created in Mexico where cannabis is no longer strictly illegal, but where new regulations are not yet in place. It reminds me of the early days in California, when most of the industry was still composed of medical cannabis patients and others who truly love cannabis, before the corporations moved in, before the licensing authorities and the inspections. It was one of the most free and most enjoyable times of my life. The social production it's actually uh, uh, happening already. People are already uh, creating cannabis clubs. They're already creating uh, um, ventures. They're already creating different kinds of, of businesses that are um, not quite as legal, uh, definitely not regulated. And um, a lot of them are in this kind of gray area that uh, once that's not forbidden, it's also uh, not legal, right? So, so it, it relates and assemblies a lot of what you always told me that uh, the, this period in California between 96 and, and 2008, uh, sorry, 2018, um, that, that you had a little bit of, uh, we don't know, but it's not forbidden, but it's not regulated, kind of like that though. The, the, the police still uh, arrests people. The police still takes that into into people into into custody and jail for even smoking a joint at the streets. But there is uh, contradictory. There's a lot of people selling weed on on Facebook and social media, and there's a lot of there's a lot of groups, uh, a lot of uh, clubs already offering membership for um, for in exchange for cannabis delivered by their houses, and that's being publicly. Uh, announced 
And a lot of these are not being, they're not being uh, chased. They're being permitted. They're being allowed. People, police is not looking for that, even though police is uh, still enforcing on the streets what's happening because um, they're looking for money. So the ebb and flow of reform and repression continue in Mexico. But huge progress has been made in the past few years. The pace of reform continues to accelerate, and victory is within sight. Things are very different in Colombia, where cannabis is wrapped up in a long-running civil conflict. The 2016 peace accords envisioned the legalization of cannabis with the reasoning that if cannabis farmers could participate in a legal industry, they would not need to rely on armed groups for protection. And some early steps were made in the direction of legalization. Colombians gained the right to grow up to 20 plants and to be in possession of 20 grams of cannabis. A licensing program for the export of medical cannabis products was established, and some licenses were issued. Medical cannabis farms were developed in some places, mostly by Canadian-funded corporations. But the election of 2018 led to a change in the government, and new president Ivan Duque has started to roll back this form. The first step was to deny medical cannabis licenses to anybody from a prior conflict zone which left the field free of competition for Duque's corporate friends. Then the right to carry cannabis was eliminated, and Duque even made an attempt to eliminate the right to grow 20 plants. It's also believed that Duque and his paramilitary supporters are behind a tripling in the massacres of farmers in conflict zones, many of them cannabis farmers. This was the overall context of cannabis in Colombia, when we received news in September of massive demonstrations and the subsequent massacre of 10 people by police in the capital of Bogota. The exact role cannabis played in this strife is murky, like so many other facets of public life in Colombia. But trouble's been brewing in Bogota since an earlier round of demonstrations was shut down with COVID restrictions. Things blew up again a few weeks ago after a video surfaced that captured the police murder of a law student named Javier Ordonez. We'll go back to Pedro Nicoletti for his perspective on the Bogota massacres. Colombian people are very unhappy uh, about their, their government right now and the, the political scenario that's happening. They started manifesting last November uh, 2019 and it was, as I re remember, a thing that a lot of Colombians were really, really uh, excited and surprised to see because there weren't, because of the state brutality that was installed in Colombia for forever since the, the war on, on drugs and the war of, on, on cannabis, uh, people wouldn't go on to the streets to protest because they would get killed. And that's still happening. And that, that's actually a wow a such a a, a, um, a beautiful uh, and and admirable thing that people are doing right now it's which is coming out on the street because they're they're targeted on the street and then they're killed afterwards in a situation that don't allow the the political reading of that murder and then they don't get to the official numbers of of leadership murder but then you look at a, at the end of the year and you look at the amount of social leaders that were murdered in the, the complicated and weird situations, 
And then you see that's clearly a, a political attack. It's not a something that happened because they, whatever reason particular in their each case. So there's a, there's a systematic murdering of political leaders in Colombia and everywhere in Mexico as well and in Brazil, but in Colombia especially, is is that's that's very strong and since november last year people are really kind of going out to the street with their with their uh, uh cacerolas with their with their pants and 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 playing and playing music and being out and smoking a lot of weed people usually in those protests that didn't have anything to do with anything to do in between uh, uh with cannabis but uh, cannabis was really present in, in all of those protests. And it was a political act to smoke cannabis alongside everybody in, in, on the street because it, it wasn't permitted then. And then that scaled up till, the, till February this year when COVID hit and Colombia adopted really, really constricted measures even uh, not allowing like uh, everybody to go out in the street at once. Uh, there was a day for women to go out. There was a day for men to go out. And then there's there's a day specifically that you could go out uh, depending on your social, like your social security number would be the relation with the, with the, with the United States. So it was really constricted measures that also uh, were clearly for, um, trying to get people to not leave their houses and not do political gatherings. And, and that really uh, worked out till now, till September, when, when that uh, specific case of the murdering of a lawyer or Donyes on the street that was going to, to buy something on the, on the food store. And then in the way to, go, to get there, he was stopped by the police. And he was murdered in, 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 in that night. And in the, the morning after that, there was videos all over the internet showing how those police officers killed him. So then that same day had massive protests. Bogota saw massive, massive protests that ended up with the death of this other 10 civilians that scaled up to more and more protests. So people are really in a, in a moment where they believe they can change the political, political situation. And they, they are scared by the COVID. They're really scared by the COVID, but they don't care. They go out in the street because that's they feel that's something bigger to, to, to fight for. Thank you, Pedro, for those stories out of Colombia and Mexico. We look forward to having you on future episodes of the podcast. I'm happy to be able to report that the persistence of the Colombian reform movement and the courage of demonstrators in the street appears to have generated some positive motion in the Colombian Congress. Following the Bogota demonstrations, two separate bills intended to fully legalize cannabis have been submitted, one in the Senate and one in the Congress. The outcome of this legislation is uncertain, as advocates expect fierce opposition from Duque and his allies. But I have faith in the resolute activists of the Colombian cannabis freedom movement. No matter how brutally pushed down, they keep rising. I will never forget my meeting with one dear Rasta brother in Bogota, whose name I'm going to protect. He and his family had lived in the same neighborhood for 12 years, braiding hair, 
selling Rastafarian regalia and maybe a few seeds here and there. He was eventually busted and locked up for two years, and on the day he was released, as soon as he cleared the prison gates, he declared publicly to the world that he would remain a cannabis activist, and he would continue to spread cannabis culture for the rest of his life and teach his children to always do the same. After Duque came to power, this strong brother began receiving repeated death threats, but still refused to stop telling the truth about cannabis. Instead, he just shifted to a different location, and as far as I know, he's still there today, bravely telling the truth about cannabis in very challenging circumstances. Now I'm going to close us out of this episode with some thoughts on building a global cannabis culture. Almost every culture on earth uses substances that have an effect on the mind, and they have for as long as we've been human. And in all of these cultures, the use of these substances is traditionally surrounded by a series of cultural norms and social expectations. It can be difficult to see these norms from within one's own society. Take alcohol and caffeine, for example. In mainstream Western culture, social acceptance of these substances is so widespread that they're more commonly thought of as food items than drugs. Coffee, tea, beer, and wine are expected beverages at most meals, but they're still surrounded with social norms and expectations. It isn't considered unusual to drink a caffeinated beverage before breakfast, but it is very rare to see coffee or tea served before dinner or lunch. At those meals, the social convention is to wait until after eating, and that makes sense given the powerful, stimulant, appetite-suppressing properties of caffeine. In a similar vein, a glass of wine or a cocktail before dinner is considered completely acceptable, but drinking alcohol at breakfast is viewed as a sign of degeneracy. Again, given the tendency of alcohol to lower discretion and impair judgment, it makes sense not to ingest it just before going to work or to school. Cultures that use other substances have the same kind of social structures. In some native cultures, People who enter a teepee at the beginning of a peyote ceremony are expected to stay there with the rest of the participants until the ceremony is over at dawn. Again, this makes sense. You don't want people who are having visions wandering around in the dark all alone, especially if they're inexperienced or psychologically vulnerable. In a similar vein, one of the rituals that often surrounds ayahuasca use in the Amazon is a period of fasting and purification before ingestion. Again, understandable given the ayahuasca can induce very vigorous vomiting. Andean tribes, like the Runa, chew coca at five prescribed times during each day. Once a quid of leaf has been fully chewed, it must be carefully removed from the mouth and respectfully disposed of, and a few leaves are burned as offerings. Again, it's sensible Coca is a powerful stimulant. It can also be a very good medicine, especially in high altitudes, but pacing, dose titration in scientific terms, is important. You don't want to give yourself a heart attack. Many cultures around the world have developed traditions and cultural norms surrounding cannabis, but the 20th century reign of terror on cannabis has pushed them underground. So most cannabis consumers around the world 
are not familiar with these older traditions. It's even challenging for a dedicated researcher like me to uncover them. But there are still a few retraces uh, that we can find. Cannabis was a sacrament to the Beni Riamba tribe of the southern Congo. They consumed it ritually every day. No major decision was ever made without passing the pipe. No journey was ever undertaken without a group smoke. Again, these were sensible customs. The ability of cannabis to encourage calm and creative thinking enables more carefully reasoned decisions. And the strains of cannabis consumed by the Bene Riamba were rich in THCV, whose stimulating properties were useful to long journeys through the jungle by foot. In Bengal, during the festival of Durga Puja, every guest and member of the family is offered bong, an infused cannabis beverage. A cup is handed around, and all are expected to partake of it. But merely touching the cup to the lips counts as partaking. Again, a very sensible custom, given that some people find edible cannabis an overwhelming or unpleasant experience. Now, today... We have a new form of cannabis culture, born in the shadows, but stepping into the light, supercharged by the internet and the power of our collective love. Bob Marley and Peter Tosh are some of our first prophets. Reggae and hip-hop and jazz music have carried our ideas all around the world. And wherever we go, we spread the ethic of a plant-based culture, a culture of peace and love. That culture is not fully formed yet. In some places, it barely exists, but in all places, it is growing. We have developed some rituals that are consistent with our values, like always opening up a circle of smokers to welcome someone new, a reflection of our commitment to radical inclusion, to never leaving anybody out. We've learned to consume the plant consciously in ways that enhance our lives, and the practice of some of our tribe members of not consuming until 4.20 p.m. reflects that consciousness. We have yet to see what we will become. What will happen is this good and gracious plant spreads her kindness and charity across our aching planet. But each of us will surely have a role in it, bringing the new world that we dream of, a new world of life and renewal, is going to take the effort and imagination of all of us, of our whole tribe. So start giving some thought to the culture we want to build, the values we want to live by, and the rituals we can incorporate into our lives to remind us of those values and help us stay true to them. I hope you've enjoyed our new format. But either way, please let us know what you think of it. We depend on you to improve this show. If you know anybody who should be one of our activist correspondents, please send them our way. There's plenty of room in this boat. And also, I remind any of your friends and yourself, for that matter, to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. And to those of you, and I know you're out there, who are listening to this show or watching this show in difficult circumstances, you may have been arrested, you may be facing trial, you may even be in jail or prison right now, Know this, you are not alone. If you love this plant, there are hundreds of millions of people all around the world who are your sisters and brothers. And we are coming. Change is coming. So stay strong 
be well, be free. I'll see you next episode. Thank you.